Welcome to Finding Hope, The End to Suffering. Hosted by psychologist, author, and co-founder of the Colorado Institute for Conflict Resolution and Creative Leadership, Dr. Barry Weinhold, with national radio host, award-winning producer, and inspirational speaker, Patricia Raskin. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to Finding Hope, the End to Suffering. I'm Patricia Raskin, your co-host with the creator and brainchild of this podcast, Dr. Barry Weinhold. Uh, welcome, Barry. Thank you, Patricia. Uh, Good to see it's, you again. And it's, been, it's great to co-host with you, and it's great to really do our segments this way because we really talk about the subject matter, which we did in the first week about changing our beliefs. And then we bring on an amazing expert, which we did at the end of the last segment, Dr. Arnold Nuremberg. And I know you found him. He's amazing in the things he's accomplished. And so today we're really going to talk to him directly. So Barry, your thoughts, a little bit more about Arnold. Well, I think, and I, uh, when I talked with him and I read his story and listened to, uh, what he had to say, I could see that uh, he was perfect for the show because basically he had a belief that developed out of something happened that happened to him. And I'll tell you about it in a minute as a teenager. And that belief started to dominate his life and it controlled a lot of his behavior and, and caused him a lot of suffering. And then somewhere along the line, he realized that and was able to to do take the steps he needed to change that belief. And now he's helping other people do the same thing, which is really remarkable about his, his ability to take what he learned personally and then use that as a way of helping other people do the same. And he's now he's a psychologist, so he has a chance to really work with a lot of people doing that. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm really pleased to have him as a guest and uh, we'd like to bring Arnold on and let yeah, him. I, welcome, Arnold. So, Arnold, what we'd like to do to start our interview with you is to have you tell us a little bit about your background and things that happened to you, maybe even early on in your life, that caused you suffering, and uh, and also the beliefs that you developed out, out of what happened to you that caused you suffering. And then we'll go on from there, and then ask uh, talk about the effect that had in your life. And then where you kind of got the aha that this wasn't working and and found a way to change that. And then what you've done since then is remarkable. So we'll hear, hear the whole story. So I'll start with where you want to begin as early on as you want to about what things do you recall happened to you that caused you suffering? I see. I, I love your whole concept of these twisted beliefs. You know, and uh, last time you went over four of them. I think it's profound, and, and as people follow your guidance with this and to get your books and go into this, I think uh, it's just going to promote a lot of growth. Uh, in my case, uh, I grew up in Brooklyn. It was a rough neighborhood. Uh, I grew up in the projects. So being tough was important, and so I handled myself pretty well. I was one of the tough guys I could handle, I, or I thought I was a tough guy anyway. Handled different things, got into different fights as a kid. Uh, and then I became a weightlifter at about age 14, got fairly strong. I wasn't a big guy. I weighed maybe 122 pounds. I was on a wrestling team, but I was strong for my weight. Uh, then one day, these two people were, I knew, uh, when I was Tony, another guy's name was Barry. Uh, so we were, out, we were on the street, and, and 
one of my friends was looking at them and, 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 and Tony said to him, hey, what are you looking at? Who, who are you looking at? And so he was ready to get in something with my, my friend Richard. So the bunch, there's some girls around, some guys. And uh, I said, uh, oh, wait a minute. I started joking around with Tony, uh, trying to defuse it. And then he didn't like that. So he swung at me. And then I, and then as I, and then I, I called out for help to some of the other guys because then Barry also charged at me. They both came at me. Uh, I, I got frightened being overpowered with these two guys coming at me. And so I ran. So I ran in front of the people. Uh, and then my friend Richard ran off after as well. We both ran from that. So I felt extremely humiliated. I can't tell. Let me tell you how humiliated I was. I couldn't even talk about it for 50 years. I felt that humiliated because in my own mind, I was a tough guy. And my, my cousins would have problems with some kids on the block. They would say, my cousin Arnie is going to take care of this. You know, I remember when I was maybe eight or nine, and my cousin Sammy was having a problem. So I had to handle a situation for him and fought this kid. So I had this mind. So I had this concept that here I am, this tough guy. Uh, but then by about the sixth grade, and, and I sort of felt tougher than people, but then by about the sixth grade, I started noticing these were human beings. They weren't just, you know, we would, they weren't just these weaker guys. It wasn't just this jungle with me being stronger than them or tougher. So I started seeing them as human beings. And once I started seeing them as human beings and wanting some kind of relationship, uh, I lost my toughness. I wasn't, I, wasn't I, I hadn't caught up. I had this belief I was still this tough guy, but really I was a tough guy. It wasn't really a tough guy anymore because I was already, to be a tough guy, you can't really see the human, the kind of tough guy I was. You can't see the humanity of the other people. So once I started seeing that, I couldn't have the same brutality. So when I ran, I then uh, plotted how to gain my self-esteem because I felt really humiliated, deeply and profoundly humiliated. And so I remember inviting each one to my house and had these plans separately with the plans of attacking them. All kinds of things went on. Well. That never happened. And that led to, by the time I was 20, uh, I went into severe depression because I never resolved this. And then over time, I've been in therapy at different times, never addressed that issue. It was so in the unconscious. It was not even in my conscious anymore, as you said. Uh, it was there as uh, a feeling of being cowardly. And so when I went through that depression, uh, it... it um, uh, and I, I remember I could hardly speak. I could hardly uh, think. I asked, uh, I tried to, uh, I was at the University of Buffalo at the time, finishing up my second year. I asked to be excused from from, from my classes to get the grade that whatever the, the grade was. They put me on a, an antidepressant called Melarol that made me just feel like a zombie. So I stopped out. Back then, Barry, Therapists would just listen to you. They wouldn't say a doggone thing to you. It was just it was very fluid. You just write down. This was back in, in the uh, early sixties. So they would just they would just write down what you're saying. Uh, nothing happened. It was a complete waste. Then one day, uh, so now, so it led to a tremendous craving to self-expression because I literally I, I couldn't really talk hardly at all. Um, Arnold, and, let me interrupt for a second, Barry. I want to ask you because you were a therapist in the 60s. Um, talk about what, you know, what Arnold's saying, how it was really hard to express yourself. You weren't really understood in those days. Well, therapy has evolved, thank goodness. 
but in those days, yeah, it was a lot of uh, uh, people would just ha- come and have a catharsis. They would just talk, and, and the therapist would listen, and they wouldn't give you any any suggestions on how to change. They would just uh, it was assumed that just coming and talking was enough therapy that you would get some benefit out of that. Well, that may work for some people, but others it, it, they needed more than that. But the therapist didn't know how to do that, so. Uh, I've been in the business of training therapists uh, for many years now, and and I've certainly trained them to do more than that. But uh, there was a time, as Arnold said, that therapists just thought that was the way to help people was just let them talk. Mm. Hey, go ahead, Arnold. Yeah. Well, it was it was a very Freudian approach. You just listen, you take notes, and I guess it's something that would take many years to see any progress from it. So then one day I was with my friend Bob Schneider on. We were driving to play tennis. And I remember suddenly, for no reason that I ever could understand, my depression lifted. I remember the exact second it just lifted like a dark cloud. Hmm. And this is a guy who was craving to express himself. When it lifted, I saw that. I said, oh, my God. I started talking. It was like I wanted to catch up with all the talking I couldn't do when I was depressed. Hmm. And so I became, from that depression, a very eloquent speaker. People say I'm a great speaker. I've given many public speeches. I've been on TV many times. I became, in fact, so, so well-known in my work on road rage on television and whatnot. But it really came from that depression and the depression where I craved for self-expression. Prior to that depression, I did not crave self-expression. Then I craved it. Wow. So, that, that, was, so, the, so there, that, that came out of that. Let me let me you know, stop you there a minute. Yeah. That's that's a very interesting point. I mean, we sometimes think of a depression or some other kind of malady as terrible, but in your case, it was the it was the route that led you out of right. this old belief about you being a coward and and into a a, a a a whole new life of being able to express how you really felt about things and who you really were. Amazingly. Uh, you know, how uh, sometimes something like that would, would be the catalyst for helping you. Exactly. I thought of that too. Well, you know, there's an ancient Persian proverb. My wife's Persian is an ancient Persian proverb. And I read this in, in the Baha'i books because I'm, I, my blood is, my background is Jewish, but I'm Baha'i by religion and follow Baha'u'llah. And Baha'u'llah quotes this poem. It goes, make no search for water, but find thirst and water from the very ground will burst. Mm. So, so I had this tremendous craving to express my inner reality. It was huge from that whole thing because I was so shut down. So once it, for that craving, I didn't take a class on how to give public speeches or anything. It just came out of a craving. And uh, then very articulate, but just pouring forth ever since. And it really came out of the depression. Now, how old were you uh, when that happened? Uh that happened, I was probably uh, somewhere around maybe, uh, I, I was just becoming a junior in college. I, I transferred to University of Buffalo to Hofstra University at that time. Mm. And on that, it was on the summer. It lifted. And uh, so then I would say, so, so now we see the depression led to becoming a public speaker. Uh, because of the craving that, that it led to. Then uh, I was always, I was a weightlifter since age 14. Mm. And I would say 
I wanted to make sure that I never got depressed again. And I wanted to be able to help other people with their depression. Became a psychologist. That being a psychologist, they, many people say psychologists went through their problems and that's why they're psychologists. Yeah. That stereotype is sure right about me. <laughs> me too. I want to be a psychologist to prevent that from happening and help mm -hmm. others with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so it led to, so it led to me becoming an eloquent speaker. And it led to me becoming a psychologist. Now, still all this time, I'm still carrying that trauma in the unconscious, never addressed it to anybody. Then it was about, then I started, then when I came into my 60s, one day when I was about 59 years of age, I said, you know, I could become a world champion powerlifter on the bench press. I because I was, I was, I never stopped weightlifting. I always kept exercising, which in part was was motivated by the sense that I'd been a coward and I didn't want to be in that position again. And by the way, over the years, I stood up to people that I never should have stood up to. You might think I was brave. It wasn't that I was brave. I was terrified of feeling like a coward. Mm. So I would stand up to people to protect people, whatever, in all kinds of situations, not out of bravery, had a terror of, of feeling like a coward again and going back to that depression. Mm. So that all then led to me training hard. And by age 65, I took the title strongest drug-free man in the world for my age and weight. Wow. So when I was in my 20s, I bench pressed 255. Mm. When I was 65, I bench pressed 365. That's drug-free, no wraps, no straps, no bench pressure, just me. So I became a world champion. I was interviewed in Powerlifting USA. I was on the cover. They had a big feature story about me. Now, here's the interesting thing. Once I became that powerful, I could be in any room around a bunch of guys, tough-looking guys, tatted guys, big. I was no longer intimidated because I was stronger than almost all of them. So I was no longer fearful of them. What did that lead to? I became gentle with other men because I no longer feared the men. Spiritually allowed me to become very gentle with men and very loving, which was always the most hidden of the hidden in me. You want to talk about unconscious. The most unconscious thing in me was love for other people. By far, the love, I think I was embarrassed by it as a man. I didn't want people to think I was hitting on them sexually, whether it was a male or a female. And so I hid the love that was the most hidden of the hidden. And then once I started coming out of the, you know, we talk about homosexuals coming out of the closet. Well, I'm a heterosexual. I came out of the closet in terms of being a man who loves other people. Right. And so I started, I mean, I was writing all these, I've written books and books of poetry, love poems to my wonderful wife and other people. So. But let me just then, ask you something, Arnold. Don't you think this is what men are taught? I mean, or they were taught. We're not taught, you know, to have that softer side. We have it. But as you said, we're not men enough if we express it. So right. you, you're kind of going against, right, Barry? What? Yeah, right. I mean, uh, in in Jungian psychology, they talk about the the masculine and the feminine, and and most people have both. But in some cultures, particularly this one, in men, the feminine is is put down and and, and thought thought to be not really necessary, important. But it it cuts off half of our humanity, and until we get connected with that feminine side, which you apparently did at that point, uh, 
then you become a fully uh, capable human, uh, a human being capable of fully loving other people. Mm-hmm. But until then, your your love is, I think, is more manipulative than actually love. It's more uh, control than than love. Mm-hmm. What I found, what I found was that that the love I had was so powerful, so profound for people, for, for my family and other people, that it went to le- actually mystical levels. That the love poems that I've written could be poems that were written to God, written to a human being. It, it went into very archetypal love expressions uh, that happened. So I, there I was, a world human power lifter and a poet, and I've got galleries of poems that I've written that I had done in calligraphy and books that I've, I've written and whatnot about the poems and whatnot. So here the depression led to the craving for self-expression, which led to me becoming highly articulate, led to me becoming a psychologist, and led to me becoming a world champion powerlifter. If somebody says, what's the secret to your success of being a, a, a powerlifter to be that powerful? I, I always say insecurity. You have to be very insecure to do that kind of training. And so that's what drove it. And uh, I would say the height of me dealing with other men, I was so big, so strong. I remember in Colorado, my wife and I were in a van with the kids. I pulled up to a gas pump. And I, and, and I was waiting, and this other guy pulled up with these two big white guys in there. I mean, they were big in this big pickup truck, and they, they were going to take the spot. I wasn't going to get in a fight with them. I was in my tank top. I got out of my, my van to just go talk to them. I, I wasn't going to be talking smack or any nasty things to them. Well, they pulled back. They just lurched back like the bat out of hell. They squealed back and just took off. <laughs> well, I didn't feel good about dominating those men, but I felt great about I didn't back out. You know, I, I did feel good about that. Well, that was the height of seeing power over other men by by being intimidating. I people tell me they wouldn't want to meet me in a dark alley. I was very intimidating looking. Mm. Well, I, I did that thing. I'm not intimidating looking now. I lost a lot of that weight. I'm very healthy, but not nearly as strong. And uh, but I saw what it was like to be able to intimidate others. I took no pleasure in it whatsoever. I was just glad not to be backing down. Uh, But I guess some people get off on that. They like it, this power over the people. I really didn't like it. I I always feel badly for somebody feeling intimidated by me. Didn't feel badly for those guys. I was just really glad that. So that was the height of me, uh, of, of what the power did. I became... I mean, the, the, the love I've expressed to other men, you know, when growing up, uh, you know, your buddies were people you competed against. Yeah. You know, you competed against them in sports and grades. When I went to my 50th high school reunion, I'd already gone past that kind of idea. And I wrote a poem afterwards. And I said, I, I want to look into your eyes one more time, my old friend, because I yearned to see about five of my buddies. The women that I was attracted to in high school that I flirted with, that I was too shy to talk to, never think about them at all. It was not The love was not for them. It was for my friends. So I said, I yearn to look into your eyes one more time, and, and, and I wanted to go and see them. And the last line of my poem was, I did not know my heart when I was young, but in truth, I did love you then. Mm. I mean, I, I would dream about these guys. I'd miss yeah. them. 
And it's amazing. And what we're going to talk about in our next segment with you, um, Arnold, is this amazing um, disciple of self-honor that you have come up with. There are four of them and you teach this in groups to everyone. And so you may want to share them, but then in the other episodes, we're really going to go into these because not only have you developed this for yourself, but now you're teaching this to thousands of people and it's based on everything you just said. So want to just share that with us and then and then we'll close for this week and then next week we'll come back on with our expert Barry Weinhold PhD who created this podcast and our guest today Dr. Arnold Nuremberg. Go ahead Arnold. Well let me say that was all part of the journey. Another right. part of the journey which I'll go into in the next time is my felony. I became a felon at age 70. I'll go into what was involved yeah, in me yeah, becoming a felony. Yeah. And that and that felony, and when I and I can only I can tell you the bottom line. The last thing I said when I was facing Judge Snyder, February fourth, two thousand fourteen, was I have not always lived with honor, but I will die with honor. And what that led to me founding Felons of Light, founding Disciples of Honor, me going just a whole other level of growth from my right. felony and my repentance. Right. Do you want to read these four or these? Well, uh, I just tell you, here are the four commandments of honor. The four commands of honor are, I wish you well. I take full responsibility for co-creating my reality and my problems. I'm grateful for the power I gain from hardship. And then one of two depends whether somebody believes in God or not. I do, but some people don't. So if they don't believe in God or wish to address God, you go, I seek always to serve my highest values. If you believe in God as I do, it's God, you wish is my only wish. So then, so the four commandments are, God, you wish is my only wish. I wish you well. I take full responsibility for co-creating my reality and my problems. Grateful for the power I gained from hardship. For that to have an effect, that has no effect whatsoever unless it's repeated every day for a lifetime. So then I have people take a pledge, and the pledge goes this way. They raise their right hand, and they repeat after me. As a disciple of honor, I pledge myself all the days of my life to the four commandments of honor. And I'll teach them to those I love. I'll repeat them every morning, afternoon, and evening, and listen to myself recite them. When wow, people do that. changing so oh. life-changing. Uh, yeah, it transforms lives. Right. And, and Barry, I can see why you selected um, Dr. Arnold Nuremberg as a guest, because that really will change your life if you do this every day. That's right. So, um, we're going to close this segment for now, but next week we'll come back. Um, Dr. Arnold Nuremberg is our guest. He'll talk about these uh, these four uh, disciples. But what, 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 State how you say them exactly. The four? The four commandments of honor. Four commandments of honor and how and then we'll have Barry comment on this because Barry is working with people every day that want to change their beliefs. Well, very briefly, I, I, I'm very eager for Arnold to tell his uh, felony story because that was the pivot. That was where everything changed when that happened and what you did with that. So that's where we'll start off next time. All right. All right. It's been great to be with you. I'm Patricia Raskin, the co-host with Barry, Dr. Barry Weinhold, Ph.D., who has created this podcast series called Finding Hope, The End to Suffering. This episode was brought to you by the Colorado Institute for Conflict Resolution and Creative Leadership. Find out more about these resources at wineholds.org. Dr. Weinhold is the author or co-author of 75 books on psychology, including his latest book, Get Real, The Hazards of Living Out of Your False Self, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and more. 
Patricia Raskin is the host of the nationally recognized program, The Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show, and is currently heard on voiceamerica.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. New episodes of Finding Hope, The End to Suffering can be found every Wednesday. If you like the show, please leave a review and give us a rating. 